Good morning. I am no expert when it comes to music, but I love music. But I have to think that what they just did is a pretty high degree of difficulty. Wouldn't that be true? Uh, yeah. Thanks to them for their, for their uh, willingness to practice so much. We really enjoy the benefit of that. <clears throat> I love dogs. They're a marvelous creation by God. I don't know, you know, the way God created dogs, they seem to exceed the normal limits of love and loyalty, don't they? Even if you're not a dog lover, you've probably observed this in dogs, that, you know, even if an owner gets angry with the dog and throws his shoe at him or kicks him, it's not long before the dog comes up to the owner, we know with this, his ears back, and he licks the hand of the owner, right? The dog still loves his owner. It's an amazing thing to watch. Love is the most powerful thing, you know. When we choose to love, it can do wonderful things. And even a dog can melt the heart of his owner by what he does, huh? But what does the dog do about the offensive action? The dog should be offended. But the dog behaves as if there's no offense. Nothing happened. It doesn't matter. How can a dog do this? I don't know. It just seems to be the way God created him. I think he uses it to speak to our hearts, like it's spoken to mine and maybe yours as well. <clears throat> so I ask myself the question, well, how do I deal with offenses towards me. How can I love my enemy and pray for him like the Lord asked me to do? Commands me to do, I should say. Well, there's something very powerful like love that we're going to talk about today that makes these things possible. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 42 if you want to Turn there in your Bibles. We're going to be looking in the story of Joseph, and like we did last time, only we'll uh, finish the story this time. There's no way possible to cover everything, but we'll do the best we can. So last time we talked about Joseph's thriving faith despite terrible circumstances, terrible things done to him. And recall that he had this dream that God would someday put him in a position of authority and that his whole family would somehow be submitted to him. And so as the story goes, God uses a couple of more dreams by a couple of people to achieve what he wants to do in Joseph's life. And as you know the story, one of those happens to be dreams given to the butler of the Pharaoh. And that in that dream, the butler gets restored to his position, as you recall. And when the butler is restored to his position, the Pharaoh has a dream. I should title the message, Dreams Come True, <laughs> something like that. And the Pharaoh is upset because he, he can't understand his dream, but the butler remembers Joseph and he says, hey, I know a guy who can interpret your dreams. And of course, Joseph is called in and he interprets the dreams of the Pharaoh and the Pharaoh is so impressed with him and what he said that... In a matter of a few sentences, Joseph is elevated 
to the highest position of the land except for the Pharaoh himself. So that morning, you know, think of it. He woke up in prison that morning, and before the day ends, he's in royalty in Egypt, one of the most powerful countries in the world. This is the kind of thing that God can do with one who will trust him, no matter what the circumstances are. In fact, sometimes my observation is that the harder the circumstances, the greater the thing God does. So one of Pharaoh's dreams, as you recall, is there was a famine, right? And the famine even reaches the land of Canaan, where Joseph's family is. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Genesis chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Now Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt. And Jacob said to his sons, why are you staring at one another? I I can't help but laugh every time I read that. (laughs) He's staring at one another. He said, behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go there and buy some for us from that place so that we may live and not die. The ten brothers of Joseph went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said, I'm afraid that harm might befall him. I think he might suspect something. (laughs) So the sons of Israel came to buy grain among those who were coming, for the famine was in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the ruler over the land, and he was the one who sold all the people of the land to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Verse 7, when Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he disguised himself to them and spoke to them harshly. And he said to them, where have you come from? And they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. At this point, it's been over 20 years since Joseph has had his dreams, in which they for which they ruthlessly sold him into slavery for. They had gone on with their lives, not caring about his or what happened to him. But now their faces are on the ground before him, and they have no idea whom they're bowing before or what is about to happen. I want to jump ahead and read one verse where the brothers remember what they had done and the last things Joseph had said to them, just to give us some context of what's going on here. And it's in, it's in chapter 42, verse 21. The brothers are talking to each other, and they said to one another, Truly we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Imagine that scene. He pleads with his brothers not to sell him into slavery. They all know what it means. But they negotiate anyway, and Joseph is shackled up and carted away. And the tables have turned, haven't they? So now they're on their faces before him, the youngest brother in authority and the big brothers bowing down. What should Joseph do? Are they still as cold hard and mean as they used to be? If he reveals himself to them now, they're just going to act like, you know, everything's okay. 
and pretend that they've changed. Well, if they still have hard hearts, he cannot so easily give them anything, if anything at all. So he pretends like he doesn't know them and he speaks harshly to them and he begins to test them. We'll look at Genesis 42, 8 through 9. But Joseph had recognized his brothers, although they did not recognize him. Joseph remembered the dreams which he had about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to look at the undefended parts of our land. So if Joseph sits there, click, ah, the dreams. He realizes that it's playing out right in front of him. Dream come true. So what's happening is supposed to happen. But why? He does not know at this point what he's supposed to do. You and I, we're so familiar with the story, we think, of the dream. well, yeah, you're going you're gonna to put him to the test and you're going to reveal yourself. But he doesn't know that at this point. Right? He has no idea because the dream actually tells him very little. All, is he, all it t- says is that he would be in authority and they would be submitted to him. That, and that's it, nothing more. <clears throat> well, one thing we know for sure and the time, the time had come for the dream to be fulfilled, and the brothers came and bowed down to him, just like it was foretold, Joseph is exactly where he's supposed to be doing what he's supposed to do. He had trusted God despite his circumstances, not knowing what would happen. And now he was dead center in the middle of God's will, wasn't, isn't he? Faith always pays off. I remember many years ago watching a brother who was waiting on the Lord for quite some time, years as a matter of fact, about a wife. And then one night at the breaking of bread, this brother stands up and with complete and full confidence, he announces his engagement to a a Christian woman that most of us knew. And he says, we are smack dab in the middle of God's will. I loved it. I thought it was awesome. I was a younger Christian back then, and to me it was just, you know, it was amazing to see somebody with such assurance that he knew he was doing the right thing. Because marriage is a huge decision, isn't it? Well, they raised three fine children, and this year they celebrated 26 years of marriage. That tells you how long ago I heard, the, heard this. You look at their lives now and you know they've, they've been in God's will and they've been used by Him. Marriage and other big decisions can be really tough, can't they? Because we're often asked to wait on God if we're going to ask Him His will, right? We wait on God, but we can be impatient. And it doesn't hit us, occur to us who we're waiting on. Otherwise, we might not be impatient. And we forget, and it just causes us needless pain. And we fail to think about the fact that real pain comes when you make a decision outside of God's will. I remember listening to a very old message by Billy Billy Graham. I think it was the late 1950s. And he was at uh, an event where he was speaking to a group of people, and he was strongly urging people to go to the foreign mission field. 
And after that message he gave, um, he was talking to people afterwards, and this woman came up to him. And in very firm but sad tone, she said, Billy, please pray for me because I know I'm supposed to go out onto the foreign field, but I married the wrong man. Failure to trust God cost her quite a bit. Not the case with Joseph, I'm happy to say. It's good to see. He had trusted God despite his circumstances, and he was smack dab in the middle of God's will. After 20 plus years. You know, it's really refreshing to read about somebody like this. To read a story about a person who's actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. There he sits with his brothers before him, and all he knows is the last time they saw him, or the last time he saw them, they were horrible to him. But now they're doing exactly what his dream had said. What should he do? Is he supposed to judge and punish them? He doesn't know. So he tests them, and he calls them spies. He knows they're not spies, but it's a logical accusation to make, because in a famine that bad, the country is weaker, isn't it? And if you're another country outside of the famine area and you want to take over some of that land, this would be a good time to attack, wouldn't it? Send in the spies. Check it out. (laughs) Well, the brothers are horrified. They didn't expect this. Let's look at verses 10 through 14. And they said to him, No, my Lord, but your servants have come to buy food. We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, No, But you've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. Now in recalling the dreams, Joseph knows that his parents are supposed to come bow down to him too, right? That means he will see see his father, but how is this all going to come about? Perhaps in talking with the Lord at this time, he comes to understand that it's not judgment for his brothers. He's not going to uh, condemn and punish them. And you think, well, how how can we come to that conclusion? Well, we know that the story, in the story, he ends up revealing himself to his brothers, and he does so without an ounce of anger, which he could have had. And no doubt he sees that, okay, my family's in this famine too, and I'm going to be able to help them. But what to do about the brothers? It would seem that they'll have to go get their father and bring him to Egypt. And when his father finds out Joseph is alive, he's going to start asking questions. There's going to be some explaining to do. It's going to be a big mess. And Joseph's becoming to understand what God has done, hasn't he? He doesn't know the whole story yet, but he's, it's starting to come together. But the key thing that needs to happen here is that he and his brothers need to be reconciled, don't they? And how is that going to happen? Those who do wrong need to believe it. This is called conviction of sin. Somehow Joseph, with God's help, needs to bring this about. They somehow need to be reminded of what they've done, and then they need to deal properly with it, don't they? When you consider the severity of the crime the brothers had committed against Joseph, most would say retaliation is in order. 
He now had complete power over his brothers. He could easily have them put to death and no one would ask questions because of his position. He could do exactly like that. And then if the people in Egypt really knew what his brothers had done to him, they would have said, you need to put him to death. And then he could send for his dad and say, you know, they offended the Pharaoh and they got put to death. There's nothing I could do about it. He could get away with it, couldn't he? If Joseph had allowed bitter resentment, bitterness, resentment, and plans of vengeance to occupy his mind all those years that he was in Egypt, he could have easily put them away. But that is not what a godly man does. He takes something like this and he gives it to the Lord to take care of. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And you know, God does a better job than we can. <clears throat> so let's look at verses 11 through 20. He's just accused them of being spies, right? We're all sons of one man. We're honest men. Your servants are not spies. Yet he said to them, no, but you've come to look at the undefended parts of our land. But they said, you're... Your servants are twelve brothers in all, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no longer alive. And Joseph said to them, It is as I said to you, you are spies. By this you will be tested. By the life of Pharaoh, you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you that he may get your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you. But if not, by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison for three days. So there they were before him pleading for their lives, weren't they? But the testing begins and they're carted off to prison. I wonder if they were thinking of Joseph pleading with them before Joseph was taken away. In becoming a slave, Joseph had lost all his rights, hadn't he? Lost his life. And in that position, you have to do whatever you're told. You have no rights. His brothers now are experiencing the exact same conditions, aren't they? But look at verse 18. Now Joseph said to them on the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God. If you're an honest man... If you're honest men, let one of your brothers be confined in your prison house. But as for the rest of you, go carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me so your words may be verified and you will not die. So Joseph tests their hearts by sending them back with food. Minus one brother, Simeon. Right? This tests them to see if they still think it's okay to abandon a brother like they did to him. He sends them with plenty of food and even their money. If their hearts are hard, they will think they've gotten away with murder again. It does the trick, doesn't it? Joseph hits the nail on the head because after he says this, they stand there talking together with, with each other right in front of Joseph because they don't think he can understand their language, right? Look at verses 21 through 24. Then they said to one another, Truly, we are guilty concerning our brother because we saw the distress of his soul when he pleaded with us, yet we would not listen. Doesn't that break your heart? Therefore, this distress has come upon us. Reuben answered them, saying, Did I not tell you, do not sin against the boy, and you would not listen? 
Now comes the reckoning for his blood. They did not know, however, that Joseph understood, for there was an interpreter between them. He turned away from them and wept. But when he returned to them, he spoke to them, and he took Simeon from them and bound him before their eyes. Kind of like what happened to Joseph 20 years ago. Joseph wept. It's possible the memories brought back caused Joseph to weep, but it's more likely out of compassion for his brothers because they're in a bad spot. Joseph loved his family and agreed him to see them in such pain, even though they had brought it upon themselves, which is a godly attitude, isn't it? So they go back home, don't they? And they tell the story to Jacob. <clears throat> but Jacob's not willing for the youngest brother to go back to Egypt with them. That is, until they run out of food again. God can work the circumstances, doesn't he? For the sake of time, I'll briefly cover the next part of the story <clears throat> about what happens next. So after they spend some time at home, they return to Egypt <clears throat> with Benjamin, the younger brother, and then Joseph, after some time there, lets them all go home with food. So they, re they pack up their mules and return to Canaan with sacks full of food. But Joseph sets them up. He sets up Benjamin so that he's caught with one of Joseph's silver cups in his food sack, if you remember from the story. It's a horrible thing to happen. You just stole from a very powerful man. What do you think is going to happen to you? The brothers know they're in real trouble. But Joseph, he's willing to let them all go, except Benjamin. But that's a huge problem to them because they had a hard time getting Benjamin there in the first place. There's no way they can leave him. What are they going to tell Jacob? Well, Joseph's testing them one more time, right? Will they leave Benjamin and tell Jacob a similar story as they'd said about him? No, they pass the test, don't they? They go back to Joseph and they assume that they're all in trouble as well as Benjamin. And it's interesting, Judah actually makes an interesting confession. If we look at uh, ch chapter 44, verse 16 and 17. It says, So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? And how can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one whose possession the cup has been found. But Joseph says in verse 17, Far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go in peace to your father. The brother's attitude has changed, and this statement is just too much for them. And Judah makes a long argument about what will happen if Benjamin doesn't go home and says that he himself will actually stay in Benjamin's place. How about that? We talk about a change of attitude, huh? Only let Benjamin go for, his, for their father's sake. So if you think about it, his brothers have really hit bottom, haven't they? Which is exactly where they need to be. They had no defense, no way out, strangers in a foreign land, no help from anyone, totally undeserving of mercy. And then we come to one of the powerful chapter in, in the Bible, chapter 45. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. Verse 1, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who, 
who stood by him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. The situation could, could go either way. With his brothers, brothers at their absolute weakest point and totally vulnerable, Joseph could have just brought the hammer down. He could have spoken their language and said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold to the Midianites over 20 years ago into slavery, even though I pleaded with you. You stole my life from me. Finally, I've waited years for this. You fools, you thought you could get away with it, but now you're completely under my control and you will pay dearly. He could do that, couldn't he? Could you imagine the look on their faces if he had said something like that? Not only they hit bottom with no defense, no way out, strangers in a foreign land, no help from anybody, totally undeserving of mercy, they're now in the hands of a man who had the power and the motivation to put them away or whatever he felt like doing to them. And in the history of man, this scene has been played out many times, hasn't it? As one person has exacted vengeance on another for some offense. In vengeance, people have even killed other people. Trying to satisfy perhaps years of anger like Joseph and fulfilling the final confrontation they've been waiting for to happen. A confrontation they may have run through their minds countless times. Is such vengeance really satisfying? Think about it. Now they have peace? After all the pain, bitterness, anger, which had become their life, now the offender just gets death? It doesn't seem like enough for some people in some situations. The memories are still there. Putting this person to death, all that does is prevent future incidents. Something worse than death would be more appropriate. How many times in people's minds has this happened? Where they want to see certain enemies suffer long, torturous deaths. Would that make everything all better? You cannot undo the offense that was committed. You cannot erase the memories of what was done nor the long days and hours of anger over it and the bitterness in the lives of the heart. What can you do? The world really does not have a solution. At best, people go on and try it and not let it affect them, but everyone just sees it as a tragedy. Not the case for Joseph, though, because his trust was in God. And it's been said that Joseph reminds us of Jesus. And like Jesus, Joseph did not do what he could have done. He considered the following. The brothers had turned completely around from their former behavior. They knew they had done wrong to Joseph, so they did not leave Simeon behind after they left the first time. And they would not leave Benjamin behind the second time. And Judah, who had come up with the idea of selling Joseph as a slave in the first place, he actually volunteers to be a slave instead. This is exactly what what Joseph wanted, and may I say it's what God wanted to see as well. And Joseph is tremendously moved by it. And in verse 2 it says, He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. 
Why did he weep so loud? Why was he moved so much? He sees his brother's plight and his compassion for them is so great that it comes out in loud, uncontrollable weeping because he does not want to see them in such a situation. And he's glad that he can help them. But he's overcome by the emotion of actually having reconciliation. And reconciliation is sweet. It's one of the most moving scenes in the Bible. And so after 20 years, he says to his brothers in their language, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. (laughs) Dismayed may be an understatement. Dismayed, completely undone, shocked, frozen in fear might be a good way to describe it. But I love this part, because Joseph doesn't leave them hanging. He says, Joseph said to his brothers in verse 4, Please, Come closer to me. And they came closer. He wants so much to alleviate their pain. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves, because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Wow. His brothers just went from being on the bottom to now being in favor of the man who could have executed them. Sometimes we're angry with God because we think he's allowed something evil or wrong to happen to us, huh? Maybe you have something today that bothers you that you won't let go. Joseph saw what God allowed to happen to him was not evil. If you knew your Bible, if you know your Bible, you know that the Israelites being in Egypt is going to be the cause of a great deliverance to come in the next book, right? Hundreds of years later, and and then uh, we're going to see Moses come on the scene who writes the first scripture. The Passover is going to be established. The nation of Israel is going to be formed. Joseph knew nothing of this. But he does now. Make no mistake, trusting God now through trials, through offenses, reveals much about him, and it's good for us. But know this for sure, when you see him in heaven and he reviews your life and those tough parts that you weren't so happy about, you're going to find out he was doing something pretty amazing. Joseph had to deal more than just a trial, to deal with an offense of the deepest kind because the wrong was done by his own family, right? You expect your enemies to treat you like that, but not your own family. I think I'm on safe grounds when I say this morning that none of us have been offended to the extent that Joseph was. However, have we been as forgiving as he was? There's so much to say on this subject, and I'm going to have to wrap this up. We want to make exceptions to what God says. You could say, well, my offenses were not used to do any good, like save someone from a famine. Are you sure about that? If what you say is true, then get some scissors and go out, cut out Romans 8, 28 and 29 out of your Bible. Because it's not true that God works all things together for good, right? Something tells me you're not going to do that. You may not see the good or all of the good, but I promise you, you've not seen anything yet. And trusting God just changes everything. You don't want to be unforgiving. Just think about it. 
Wouldn't you agree that the term unforgiving Christian is a contradiction in terms? The ultimate and oxymorons? Hmm? When I am unforgiving, I am acting like one who is unforgiven, aren't I? The unsaved person can easily be unforgiving. He has no basis to forgive, does he? <clears throat> it doesn't pay off for him. On the other hand, Jesus said we should love our enemies and pray for them. And that's revolutionary if you think about it. The question has been asked, well, why would anybody forgive their enemy? Why indeed? What for? Well, to the person who doesn't know God, it, it's, it's crazy. They have no basis for that. Well, the reality is this, and it's very simple for the Christian. If God forgave me for every sin that I have committed, then I can forgive anybody for anything they do to me. And if it weren't for God, there would be no forgiveness. Reconciliation is sweet, and it puts you right in the middle of God's will. Don't be unforgiving. Trust the Lord, no matter what. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for forgiveness. If it wasn't for forgiveness, we would have no hope. And Lord, it's nothing less than tragic when we won't be forgiving. Help us, Lord, because some of us have real struggles with this. Help us to remember what it is you've done for us. When we look at our enemy, may we see a person that Jesus died for, a person that Jesus loves. And Lord, let your love go through us. Let us forgive them and do your will. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.